It's another blessed occasion, isn't it, that we can assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to do that in such a way that we are, of course, so very much intent on the hymn being pleased with our gathering. And as we have sung these songs about faith so far, all the songs that we've sung, trusting in Jesus, walking by faith, they've all touched the subject we're going to look at in some detail this evening. If you would be turning to the book of James, nestled near the end of the New Testament, and as we look at that five-chapter book this evening, our impression, our goal, our motivation will be to appreciate a renewed impression of faith and to understand what it was the inspired writer told us in at least the few moments that we have given to us tonight. These opening comments on this next slide will basically set before us that we this year have, at least I've made an attempt, to select some lessons that in fact will hopefully increase and enhance our knowledge of certain books in the Bible. We've looked at Philemon in detail. We looked at the book of Mark in detail. Tonight, we come to the book of James. And as we do that, I would invite that you and I give thought to the powerful presentation of faith. All of us know that that's a critical element to please God. Aren't we told in Hebrews eleven six? But without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. And it seems as though the book of James helps you and I to understand in a very concise but clear way some of the basic attributes of faith. And so tonight, for the next few moments, let's reflect on these five chapters with the intent of appreciating again and again what it means to be a person of faith. Some have likened the book of James to be the New Testament counterpart to the Old Testament book of Proverbs to highlight the practical, ongoing, daily application of what it means to be a servant of God. Others liken it better to the book of Amos in the Old Testament. I would submit it seems to me there's a fair appreciation and application of each of those thoughts. But as we come to the bottom of that slide, wouldn't we each agree that the book of James, perhaps unlike any other in the New Testament, is a sterling book demanding us to understand what it means to be a person of faith. Our world has so much that it often asserts about faith, and quite frankly, much of it isn't re- is not right. But when you and I want to know what it means to be a man or a woman of faith, I submit to you the book of James would hone our appreciation and focus our understanding like looking through a clear lens, helping us understand what it means to be a person of faith. Surely enough, at the bottom of that, we will want to ask each of us as we come near the close of the lesson to be sure, in light of this presentation, this book of James, am I a person of faith? If not, we will have learned what we need to change. Let's begin that journey, though, by noting a few particulars about the book. Such things as, from where was it written and who wrote it? Can we at least directly make appreciation of that because that may assist us as we understand what it means then to be a person, an individual of faith? I would ask you to notice the name given to this book, James. It seems clear based on verse number 1 that a gentleman named James wrote it, but that immediately begs another question. There are three principal disciples of the Lord listed with the name of James in the New Testament. There was one who was the son of Zebedee and brother of John. There was another who was known as James, the son of Alphaeus. 
And there was a yet another who was Jesus' half-brother. We know, of course, about that one, primarily starting from the matter of Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 and following. One of the actual sons of Joseph and Mary was named James. I'm sure we each could then appreciate, as we look at each one of them, which one, if any of them, wrote this book. It seems as though we can eliminate a couple of them. Think about that James that was the actual brother of John and son of Zebedee. We have the record of that gentleman's death in Acts chapter 12. He appears to have been the first of the apostles that was put to death. He was martyred for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. It would seem that the writer of this book was not that one. In addition to that, might we appreciate primarily that's a matter in chronology. In other words, that James was put to death before this epistle of James was written. It seems, again, it could not have been that one. As far as James, the son of Alphaeus, you might again appreciate there are a few comments in this book that seemingly eliminate him. That leads us primarily one other that we might initially focus on. Could it be that the one who wrote this book was the actual half-brother of Jesus himself? Could it be that the one who wrote this book was in fact the actual son of Joseph and Mary it would seem from the evidence that that is in fact the case. Now I've asked you to notice that that immediately asks us to appreciate this. Jesus' half-brothers did not believe on Him initially. According to John chapter 7, verse 5, they simply didn't believe in Him. It was not until after the resurrection that James and the others appeared to have appreciated the nature of who in fact Jesus was, or at least given themselves over to being a follower of Him. And that James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, became a very important figure in the book of Acts, didn't he? You and I remember in Acts chapter 15, when there was that discussion, that in fact conference held in Jerusalem to discuss the nature of how in fact the Gentiles should be welcomed in, if at all, and should we require them to be circumcised. James led that discussion. James, that was the half-brother of Jesus. He came in fact to be an elder, tradition says at least, in the church at Jerusalem. Perhaps all of that leads us to note this. This James that wrote this book, if we consider he was the half-brother of Jesus, might we note one more thing. The word apostle then, as it is used in the New Testament, we remember that Jesus initially selected twelve who would be His closest followers. And the word apostle literally means those who are sent out. And Jesus commissioned them. And as such, they were the initial ones who would be the defenders of that early church. But isn't it true that later in the New Testament, that same word apostle is used with respect to some later ones who also occupied a role of being sent. In Acts chapter 14, verse 14, Barnabas, for example, is called an apostle. And later, in Romans 1, verse 1, Paul referred to himself as an apostle. And he also did that in many other New Testament books as well. When you and I then give thought to this man named James, it's true, the half-brother of Jesus was not one of the original twelve. But is it such that in a later way, after his conversion to the faith and as his approach to that came to be so useful, 
Was he also apparently called in some sense an apostle? It seems so in Galatians 1.19 because he's the very one there whom, of course, Paul himself would in fact have discussion with and Paul called him an apostle there. I say all of that to say this. As we think then about this five-chapter book of James, isn't it an impressive thing to give thought to here? This gentleman at first was not an apostle, not a believer in Jesus, but he came to be. After the crucifixion and after the Lord's resurrection, he was one who devoted himself apparently to the very end of his days in defense of that thing we call Christianity. That's an impressive thought, isn't it? No wonder in light of that we close this slide by noting this book of James, according to chapter 1, verse 1, was written to twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Twelve tribes scatter abroad. That is to say, individuals that I've described like this. They appear to have had a degree of Jewish background, but under the duress and persecution that had come about, they were forced to move around. As they did that, we notice this particular book was written to encourage them, to help them remain strong and fortified in the faith, and to assist them that they might never waver and allow their faith to lapse. You and I have already noted that the book of James then surrounded the topic of faith. And as it does, one last thing. The central subject of the entire book is faith. All five chapters in one way or another set that theme and that subject, that topic before us. And as that happens, you and I will learn much about it and have much revisited to us. Surely in light of that, let's close that slide by saying, isn't it true that human definition for faith is rather worthless? Our interest is to appreciate that without faith it's impossible to please God. But yet Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. First thing then in chapter number 1 takes us to some of these ob immediate observations. Haven't you often been impressed with the rather abrupt way the book of James begins? He does not ease into this at all. Almost immediately, James asserts the truth that your faith is going to be tested. Verse number 2 of the opening chapter, after introducing himself as the author and introducing the subjects to whom he's writing, he immediately says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. I suspect that if you or I, just by our own nature, had written a book, again, we likely would have eased into it. But James didn't do that. He immediately wanted to impress upon these who were his hearers that your faith is going to be tested and the trying of it should not be cause to falter or waver. And the trying of it must never be occasion for excuse in terms of falling aside from the, from the Lord Jesus Christ. But rather... The testing of your faith, as you'll see here, it should be appreciated that there is to be understood the trial should, in fact, produce even a greater faith. Count it all joy, verse number 2, when you fall into divers temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. 
I would submit that it's rather easy to look at trials very differently than the way this, than, than this suggests. Often you and I will look upon trials more from the perspective, why is this happening to me? I don't like this and it's hard. God, why don't you take it away from me? And all the while as God looks through His perfect lens, He knows full well that if we would just remain steadfast, faithful, and true, it will redound to a greater element of faithfulness in us. Rather than being sorrowful and sad for the trial, James says you ought to be thankful for it and you ought to be joyful about it and you ought to pray to God about it. We would be far stronger as Christians if we would appreciate this rather quick and abrupt way the book begins. He encourages you and me, if any of us like wisdom. Verse 5, let's ask of God that gives to all men liberally and never ever upbraids. He quickly points out that a double-minded man is always unstable. We ought not be wishy-washy. Our faith should be steadfast and true. Aren't we reminded in 1 Corinthians 15, 58? Be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. As you give thought to the book beginning this way, he quickly uses that to prompt the following. Please notice verse number 12. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. May I ask each of us to give careful thought. To be tried, if it causes, if you and I allow it to cause us to falter and to fail and to apostatize, we have allowed that trial to lead to where it never should have. Notice again, the blessing is the person who endures this, who despite the challenge and difficulty emerges victorious beyond it. Look at the promise that's given to them. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Abraham was tried, wasn't he? Abraham, take that only son, the blessed son of promise, the one that you and Sarah have born in old age, offer him as a sacrifice to me. Genesis 22, Abraham did it. And yet he is lifted high now for all these centuries since as an example of faithfulness. Paul used him in Romans 4 as an example of what you and I should be like in faith. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. May you and I be strong with each passing day. We're about to start a work week tomorrow. May you and I realize that as we do that, the forces against us will often seem so strong. The world may so often appear to be engulfed and overwhelmed in evil. May you and I be faithful and true, strong until death. Look what follows this. As you come near the bottom of that slide, this need for endurance, this need for for perseverance leads us immediately to the next element, but not only is faith to be tested. What is faith? I know a moment ago you and I quickly observed the definition of Hebrews 11.1, 1, but beginning at this point in the book of James, it would appear to me one way to perceive and to view what follows is perspective and presentation after presentation. This, God says through James, is what faith is. 
the world may often disagree, and many scholars and others who have written may seemingly have very different viewpoints than this. But this is what faith is. Let's one by one step through them. First, James 1.19, faith is obedience. When a person says, I love God and this is what He wants me to do all the while, it's not what's recorded in the Bible. I'm sorry. That's not faith. Faith does what God says to do and He does it without questioning Him. It's enough that God said it. Now, it's sometimes helpful and encouraging if He tells us the reason why. But in the final analysis, God is not obliged to tell us the reason why. He is the infinite great Creator. It's enough that He simply says to do it this way. And you and I in faith must do it that way. Notice verse 19. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath... For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Faith listens to God, and it does what God says to do. That particular idea, as you notice, verses 19 and following immediately manifests itself like this. Faith has something to say relative to the tongue. Faith, you see, controls its tongue. Could you and I develop that based on verse 26? If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Aren't you a bit impressed with the directness with which James made these statements? Here's a person who has some degree of proclamation concerning religion. I'm a religious person, godly and pious. And yet you hear this ongoing, continuous kind of language that's unbecoming and condemned in various places in the New Testament. That person's religion is vain. One of the things faith does is it controls its tongue. That's a challenge for you and me, isn't it? And so prolific is the presentation. Turn over two chapters to chapter 3. Probably two-thirds of this chapter surrounds the controlling of the tongue. Could we select a few passages in passing? Verse 3, Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turned about their whole body. Behold, the ships which, though they be so great, and are driven a fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of hell. I'm sorry, setteth on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire of hell. Verse 8, The tongue can no man tame. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. One of the characteristics of faith, it controls its tongue. Do you and I work on that if we have an issue with it? Are we trying to bring that tongue into control? James says a person of faith will give effort toward that goal. As you and I develop that thought about the tongue... In chapter 4, verse 11, it's developed again. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. Do I need to work on that? What about you? 
Am I too quick to speak evil of a brother to perhaps spread that matter that's nothing more than gossip or tale-bearing? I need to work on that if that's an issue I'm facing, and so too do you. What about chapter 5, verse 12? My brethren, above all things, don't swear. Do you and I lapse into making oaths, oaths that are, of course, improper and not in accordance to the things of God? You'll notice many of the five chapters of James touches the subject of the tongue, doesn't it? What if we look at the next matter? James chapter 2, verse number 1 and following. Faith isn't discriminatory. Maybe we should develop that rather quickly in passing the way that James does. James puts a situation before the brethren. Suppose a person in fine apparel comes in and you make sure to sit him in a nice place of prestige and honor. But another person comes into your assembly, not dressed nearly as well. Do you ask he sit in the back? Do you encourage him perhaps to stay separate and maybe make not an effort to share a matter of friendship and welcoming character? James says that's not a person of faith if you make that kind of distinction. God sees souls, doesn't He? And He's intensely interested in one and all being saved. You and I should be impartial when it comes to things like that. 1 Timothy 5.21 You and I... <clears throat> Do, we, do you and I exhibit discriminatory matters when it comes to things like that? James says we shouldn't. As he develops that point in chapter 2, verses 1 and following, he highlights riches and things based upon carnal matters. We each know that sometimes our world looks upon religion that way. Which church building is the most ornate? Who has the highest steeple? Which one stained glass is the prettiest? Surely they're the most religious. That's not true. Religion, by its very nature, isn't based solely upon things like that. In fact, we wish to be right in the sight of God, and we're thankful for a building to be sure. I mean, we never want to discriminate based on the kind of clothing, the other matters that that might display. You'll notice that some of them in that day, James says, were making distinctions based on that. Don't you remember Jesus at one time in Luke 14, verses 1 and following, made a similar presentation? A man, in fact, is such that he has a feast and one comes. And you'll notice that he asked that man to sit in this high place of honor, but the thing is, a more honorable man came, and the one was then asked to take a lower place. There was a degree of embarrassment. There was a degree, you see, of consideration. May you and I never base our approach to someone solely upon something like that. Look where James goes after that. Notice verse number 7. Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which you're called? James 2 verse 7 highlights that faith understands just how exquisite, just how great it is the name Christian honestly is. It's the greatest name that we can wear and how thankful we are unto the God of heaven that we can wear it. May we never bring reproach upon it, but rather lift it high so that all could appreciate the one that we serve, the worthy name. Reminds us of 3 John verse 7, doesn't it? Where again that kind of worthy name is presented and discussed. Not only the worthiness of it, 
But chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, the lesson text that was read earlier tonight, doesn't it highlight the following, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I'll show thee my faith by my works. How is faith manifested? How do you realistically claim that you have it? It's not merely something that you mentally believe in no more. It's not something that you give abstract notion to and no more. James says, faith is busy, it's active. Tonight before the services, we had a meeting about our personal evangelism seminar. And we're excited about what the realities of that may be later in this year. But one of the things prompting our congregation to consider this is, is faith does work, doesn't it? It's something that seeks to bring about in reality that which the New Testament teaches. Faith is busy, it's active, isn't it? Even so, faith, verse 17 tells us, if it hath not works, James rather abruptly says, it's dead. That kind of faith is lifeless. That kind of faith later in the chapter is described as a vain thing. You'll notice in light of that, this example of Abraham is highlighted. May I direct your attention to verse number 24? You see then how that by faith, I'm sorry, how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. The one and only time in the entire New Testament when the phrase faith only occurs is right there. And the inspired writer says, you are not justified by faith only, but rather by that faith that demonstrates, that manifests, that shows itself in light of the activities which it does. With that definition, what about you and me? Are we people of faith? Are we living tomorrow what we profess today? Does our life display Tuesday what we have claimed by way of profession on Sunday? Faith is busy, it's active in that very way, isn't it? Isn't it an ongoing thing then to control my tongue tomorrow and Tuesday, to seek then to not be discriminatory tomorrow and Tuesday, and the ideas continue onward? As we close that particular slide, be impressed with verse 19 with me for just a moment. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Our world, who on many occasions at least likes to parade the thought of faith only. By the way, to some extent, I feel sure that'll be a strong part of that public discussion held near the end of the month of May between, again, Michael Bronner and, and uh, uh, J.B. Clark, B.J. Clark, rather, from, from Memphis. No doubt that a strong part of the presentation of Mr. Bronner will be exactly that. And I have every realistic consideration that this passage will be one that Brother Clark will mention many times. Even the devil believes, but he isn't saved. You see, faith alone, that kind of belief has never been enough to save. If it could, the devil would be saved. I'd submit that in light of this, faith must manifest itself in works, and James makes that point very strongly, doesn't he? As we transition to our next slide... What else is faith? How do I know that I am a man of faith? And how do you know that you are a person of faith? Notice what else faith does in chapter 3. 
We noticed the tongue a moment ago in verses 1 and following. Consider verses 13 and following. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there's confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that's from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Do you and I seek the wisdom that's from above? That wisdom that's pure. That wisdom that's described in those verses we just read. That wisdom isn't contentious. That wisdom isn't carnal. That wisdom, as you notice in verse number 15, isn't earthly. That's a litmus test that you and I can use to help know whether or not we're people of faith. You'll notice that where there's envying and strife, that immediately is of that wisdom that's from, from beneath. Are you and I envious? Is our life filled with strife? Do we pursue what's motivated by those things? If so, we are not the person of faith that we may have thought. Next on that slide, what else is faith? As you and I turn to the next one, chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you love this world so much that you will allow it to stand between you and service to God? If so, you love this world too much. If what this world offers is something that you are willing to allow to come between you and God, do you miss the services for something that is carnal-based? If so, you love this world too much. If you're willing to, in fact, separate yourself in some critical way from the things of God solely because of the world, you love the world too much, and so too would I. James says you're an enemy of God. You have put enmity between you and God if you're in that category. Are you and I a person of faith? As we develop that one, what about humility? Verses 6 and 10 of chapter 4. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. There's a song near the back of our book that has that very phrase in it. In fact, it was patterned after it. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. We noticed that at one point in the lesson this morning. It is one of the tactics that the devil uses over time to work in your life and in mine to bring about an element of arrogance and pridefulness, a degree in which we rationalize some sinful behavior by somehow attempting to excuse it. May we never allow ourselves to reach that point. But always to be prompt and pricked, let a conscience be such that it will cause us a sleepless night so that we can come back to God. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. David understood that, didn't he, in Psalm 131. The opening two verses of that chapter, he promotes the very nature, I will never, in fact, allow myself 
to come to the point of thinking too highly and wrestling with things too great for me. Are you a person of humility? Am I? You and I know that the book of 1 Corinthians, the opening chapter at least, often made reference to those who sought after the wisdom of this world and they thought that there was too much nobility in me and they would thus remain distant from God because they were too arrogant. If we're in that position, we'll make the same mistake they made. After humility, notice in verse 8, faith draws near to God. Faith doesn't run from God, it draws near to Him. Does serving God excite you? Does it excite me? Is it something that literally is the high point of your life? Do you look forward to gathering with the saints and offering the heartfelt worship of your heart? Faith draws near to God. Time and again, as we not only reflect on the Old Testament, but even certainly in the New, we remember verses like this in Psalm 89 verse 7. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about Him. Psalm 122 verse 1, I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go up to the house of the Lord. In Acts 20 verses 7 and following, Paul waited to meet with the brethren in Troas. He didn't in fact go on past. He waited for the period of time to assemble with the saints. Tonight, we've looked forward to this and we've been blessed by God with the opportunity to come. Not only does it draw near to God, notice how that chapter closes. For to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it's sin. That may be one of the most challenging verses in the whole New Testament. When you and I know to do something good and we don't do it, for laziness, slothfulness, whatever the reason may be, we've become guilty of sin. I'm sure as Christians, all of us wrestle with that. I had the opportunity to say something. God gave me the opportunity. That conversation, the perfect door opened and I didn't say anything. I've been there too many times. Maybe you have as well. Or maybe it was something else. Aren't you thankful that as a child of God, I try to learn from that mistake and I be ready in subsequent occasions because to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, I've become guilty of sin. What a practical little verse. You'll notice along that same context, chapter 3, or chapter 4 rather, verses 13 and following highlight another great truth. Faith understands the brevity of life. Life in this flesh is just not going to last very long. It's compared in verses 13 and 14 to a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Even at its best, perhaps nine decades or ten decades, but it so swiftly is gone. You and I have often had opportunity to speak with those who advanced to, to great age, maybe a great-grandparent, Aren't you always impressed when you talk to them and let them say how fast it seems life has gone? You and I are given but a little while to sojourn in this flesh. For it's true, we look for a city whose builder and maker is God, Hebrews 11 tells us. But surely in this passage, we so quickly are brought to realize that our time here is so brief. May we use it wisely. May we be those who not only appreciate that truth, but verse number 15, manifest it like this. 
For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. Do you and I make constant plans in light of being first and foremost a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? We should. May we make sure that it's vital to put top priority to being a servant of His. So far, having looked at these things, verse 15, that constant reliance manifested in chapter 5, verses 1 and following. In the practical way, we understand the acquirement of the possessions and the monetary riches that we do enjoy. May we first realize they're a gift from God. We're but stewards of them for a little while that we happen to be here. He owns all of it anyway. The psalmist told us that in Psalm 24.1, and Paul quoted that nearly verbatim in 1 Corinthians 10. In James 5, verses 1 and following, aren't we taught that even there, those who've acquired riches, who have taken advantage of others, and who have gotten them in a somewhat ill fashion, that's a sad thing to be sure. James highlights it very carefully like this. Verse 1, Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. God knows exactly how you got it. And if you don't make things right, it won't work well for you on the day of God's amazing judgment. Maybe it's fair to say as you look at those things, aren't we encouraged to think about the features and the factors that come that slide didn't change. I'm sorry. In chapter number 5, in light of verse number 9, faith doesn't murmur. It says, Murmur not one against another, brethren, lest that ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. When you and I think about murmuring, doesn't it bring about the thought of complaining? Those who seemingly always focus on the negative and what I don't have. Faith isn't given to murmuring. The children of Israel, you see, acted in those ways in the Old Testament. Numbers 11 highlights but one example of many others. How's the attitude and direction of your life and mine directed? You'll notice in addition to that, what a great example is set before us later in this chapter. As we think about the man named Elijah, verse number 16, Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another that you may be healed. Faith is prayerful. And in addition to that, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Are you and I convicted when you pray? Are you assured that God is hearing and are you thankful for the avenue of it? May we never allow prayer just to be an activity that's more of a habit than anything else. Prayer is meaningful and prayer is powerful, isn't it? When Elijah prayed, it didn't rain for three and a half years. Or rather, I should say, when he prayed the second time, of course, it started raining again. What power there is in prayer. It may well be in light of those things. Let's close our lesson tonight by thinking about the victory that's in prayer. The song that we sang not long before the lesson tonight causes us to think about faith as the victory. That's taken admittedly not from this book, but from 1 John 5 verse 4. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. 
your faith and mine every reason in the world for it to be victorious and triumphant. Let's close our lesson that way. James 5 verse 8, faith awaits the second coming of Jesus. You see, it isn't simply focused on the here and now. Faith is focused on what one day shall be, but it lives in light of that reality. Faith's convicted that this world's not our home. It's convicted that there is coming a time to pass from the scenes of this life, but there's a greater life beyond. Faith's assured of that. That kind of assurance takes us to the appropriate attitude shown in chapter 5, verse 13. If we have all of these attributes of faith, when we're afflicted, we're going to pray. The first line of approach to affliction is not to gossip about it, not to tailbear or in fact look upon the negative, but to pray to the source of the one who can do something about it. Are you and I, is prayer our first line of defense? Notice what else is said there. If you're happy, if you're merry, let him sing. Aren't you thankful God has given us voices? Haven't you always been amazed? God could have given us a voice that permitted us to talk. Didn't have to give us the opportunity to sing, but He did. We can sing. We can, in fact, put melodies and thoughts into words in that way, and we can praise God. And songs often are some of the sweetest reflections in life. Maybe you can remember when you were just a little boy or girl and the Sunday school songs you learned then, they're still in your memory. Songs are that lasting. The melody is sometimes so easy to appreciate. May I suggest faith is triumphant. And let's close our lesson by, notes, by noting this. It's the way James ends the book. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth... And one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Faith is so convicted in the truth of the Word of God that it takes the opportunity to approach an erring brother, not in a hateful disposition, not in an attitude of being better than you, but out of concern for your soul. You're doing what you shouldn't do. Faith, you see, behaves in that way, doesn't it? The book of James has been our study, our focus for the evening, and isn't it amazing the things that faith is? Are you, am I, a person of faith? We've seen the marching orders given to us tonight. If you're not a person of faith, if I'm not, we have an opportunity to make it right. Jesus calls, He invites one and all this very night, if you would like to make a public response to His invitation, please do so at once. Please do so as we stand in just a moment and sing this song. It is an opportune time, and we'd be honored to assist you if you wish to become a Christian, following again the plan of what that requires. But if you'd like to be rededicated, to confess errors in a public way, just like 6 verse 16 of chapter 5 told us, if you'll confess that... God's faithful and just to forgive, and we'd be honored to pray to God for you. Tonight, if we could be of assistance or help, we'd be delighted to do that. We'd invite you to come, as does the Lord, even at once, while together we stand and while we sing.